Hi, welcome to Creative Review's very first podcast. Uh, I'm here, my, my name's Eliza Williams, and I'm here with my colleagues, my fellow writers and editors at the magazine, uh, Patrick Burgoyne. Hello. Saloni Gardgill. Hi. And Rachel Stephen. Hello. So this is our first time doing this, and today we're going to talk about uh, some topics and projects that we have found interesting that have come through the office this week. So really the things that we've been talking about at the magazine. Uh, and that will include this week a discussion of a survey that we have run at Creative Review on the Me Too movement uh, and issue in the industries. And we will also talk about uh, recent artworks that have been created for the protest marches on gun violence in the US. And finally, photographer Joel Myvitz, who has a new book out, and the recent Offset Festival, which I attended and saw Chris Ware, who was one of my favourite artists, so that was very exciting. We're going to go for the serious subject first, and uh, Patrick is going to talk us for a little bit about the Me Too sub- uh, survey that Creative Review ran over the last few weeks. So how did that come about? Well, I think this is a subject that um, we certainly felt compelled to uh, report on and to, um, to cover, um, but there was one that we approached, um, I wouldn't say warily, but we were very mindful not to be purient or salacious or um, in any way sort of sensationalist about what is a very, very sensitive issue and something that we wanted to make sure we tackled in the right way. So as a first step, um, I think we thought the most sensible thing was to try and understand a bit better how these issues around sexual harassment in the workplace were affecting our community. So um, we ran an anonymous survey that sought to try and find out um, in which ways people had been affected, um, how they felt about uh, what they were able to do about that, if they had experienced sexual harassment, did they feel confident that they could report it, did they feel like their employer would actually do anything about it, Um, Did they feel that if they were to report it, it might affect them adversely in their career? But equally, we wanted to try and look at whether there were ways that we could try and find to move forward on this and what possible solutions might be to make things better. Um, So we also wanted to ask people about um, how important this issue was to them in terms of how their employer um, was dealing with it and the kind of trust they had in their employer and just how it factored into their attitudes in terms of how they might view a a future employer and and how important it was when considering who they might want to work for in future. Okay, and what kind of responses did you get? I believe that the ad industry responders said that there were more issues of sexual harassment than other areas, is that right? Yeah, I think, you know, in a survey like this, you have to be very careful about the data and how you interpret it because there's inevitably some degree of self-selection, which means that those people who have been directly affected by an issue like this are probably going to be more likely to take part in the survey. So, you know, all of this comes with some caveats, but by and large, uh, of the responses that we had back, um, it seemed like there was a perception that this was more common or more prevalent in the advertising industry than, than the design industry, but both obviously have a problem here. Um, they're, they're not the only industries to be affected, as we've learned over the last few months, but there's certainly an issue here, and this is our community, so we wanted to find out more about it. I think one of the most uh, worrying things that it did uncover was uh, that people didn't feel very confident that they could report sexual harassment when it happened to them. So um, of people who had experienced sexual harassment, 
only 17% actually reported it. And of those who did report it, um, less than half saw any action taken as a result. So it goes back to that problem of people feel confident that A, they can report something in the, in the first place, and B, that something's going to be done about it and that it won't affect them in the future. Um, so I think there's a lot there for employers to look at, both in terms of the kind of formal processes that they have, but there's a much bigger, wider discussion around culture um, and how you create a culture where people feel safe, where they feel confident, and where they feel that if there are any issues to do with sexual harassment, but it also goes wider than that, it could be bullying, it could be other forms of discrimination, how they feel confident to go forward and, and do something about that. Okay, and do you feel there's a sense that it's being seriously tackled? I mean, from what you just said then, possibly not, but there have been some kind of, certainly in the advertising industry, there's been some major figures in the industry leaving uh, agencies, I mean, very senior figures, but there has been a sense in which it's not being entirely made explicit uh, for what reasons they might be leaving. And there's obviously sort of NDA agreements in place. And I mean, do you feel there's a sense, did it come through in the survey at all, a sense whether people feel that the industry is, is doing enough yet or whether more needs to be done? Well, we did ask about um, whether if people uh, were to experience sexual harassment at work in the future, how likely they'd be to report it and, and how much they trusted their employers to do something about it. Um, and, and we found that 40% um, said that they would definitely report it in the future and a further 27% said that they probably would. So that's um, encouraging. Um, but the, the more worrying thing is that 62% um, thought that reporting an incident would either probably or definitely um, adversely affect their career in future. So there's still a problem there. And going back to what you were saying about the people who um, have left the industry, one of the problems that, 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 that there is around that is the lack of clarity around the reasons for them doing so. And at the moment, it, it tends to be a lot of kind of whispers and, and innuendo, and I don't think that does anyone any favours. And while on the one hand, you know, absolutely we have to respect people's rights on both sides of this, and be very, very, very careful, and certainly as a magazine, very careful about how we report these things. I think there is some um, danger that, that, that there's a kind of layer of, or veil of secrecy about some of this at the moment. And um, until you know, these things are really addressed in a very clear way, I think it, it, it may be difficult for, to move forward. But having said that, I think um, since the start of this year, it's been very encouraging to see the number of, of, of groups who are coming to organise around this, some of the industry bodies that are getting behind this. And there does seem to be, um, this does seem to be a tipping point, I think. And there does seem to be um, a genuine point that um, this isn't going to um, stand any, anymore. Um, but I think there's also a wider issue here, which is that um, the general, general kind of culture and the way in which work is made, the creative process is actually changing. And I think for a long time, particularly in the advertising industry, and I think the design industry too, um, there has been this cult of the often male creative genius, the so-called mm. <laughs> rock star creative, which I think is a horrible term, or the star designer or the star architect. Um, and this sort of implicit deal that certain types of behaviour 
will be indulged just because this person's amazing and yeah. their work's so great that oh well you know yes they can be a bit temperamental or they can do they can do these sorts of things but but that's okay because they're such a genius and that the culture has been one of uh, you know this sort of singular vision which then has to be be protected at all costs and the kind of mark of good work is how far the, that pure thought goes through the process you know virtually unsullied and actually with the, the impact of things like digital transformation, the increasing importance of digital products and services, customer experience and all those kinds of things, the way in which work is made uh, now and I think in the future is going to have to be much more collaborative, much more about co-creation. I think that then creates a culture that's very different and works against this sort of um, cult of the uh, genius creative and actually towards a culture that's much more acceptable of and reliant on different points of view, being much more collegiate, much more open to um, a way of working that has to be uh, much more collaborative. And, and, and hopefully that means that that underlying cultural shift, um, as well as I think there's going to be a wave of new regulation in this area. Um, I mean, at the time of us recording this, uh, a new report has just come out from the UK's Equalities and Human Rights Commission, which is calling for tighter legislation in this area. So I'm sure there's going to be more legisla legislation too and um, a push towards people understanding their rights better at work. So I think those two things, legislative change and cultural change, are going to work hand in hand to uh, really change things. Yeah, because one, one of the interesting things from the survey, I thought, was that it suggested that actually people, employees, will be looking much more closely at this and in terms of where they might go to work, that it will become a kind of issue for actually getting the best talent into your company in a way that maybe other things like diversity and in work environments and these other kind of wider issues around work, not just who you get to work with, uh, are becoming much more important to people. So I th thought that was very interesting and quite positive that it suggested there was a a real need for the industry to change beyond just doing it for to look good actually for them to kind of continue in a business sense absolutely i think you know when where people have a choice i think um they are going to want to know that this potential employer uh is going to be a place where they can feel safe where they can feel listened to um, and is going to have the kind of culture that they would expect um, and more and more i think that's going to be a factor in where people choose to go and work Sorry, you know, talking about the workplace culture, mm. I think there's a really, it's really great to see that the way that the work is being made is changing and that hopefully that will have a positive impact. I think maybe one thing that definitely came out of the responses that we had to the survey was that one of the major problems might be in kind of smaller studios mm. and, and smaller organisations. If you work in a, a large company, so say you're in an agency with, you know, three, four, five hundred people, the chances are you're going to have an HR department who you could go to and you could talk in confidence. The problem comes when you're in a much smaller team that's perhaps made up of friends, partners, family members, people who've known each other for years. And actually, e even if your your company has, has followed their legal obligations and rules, you might feel or find it incredibly daunting to, to come forward because you're talking to people who you know well and who know the person you might be making a complaint against well. So I think definitely from looking at the responses to the survey as well there perhaps needs to be a conversation around how smaller companies are going to look at putting in some sort of a support structure and and really making people um 
who have experienced harassment um feel confident that they can go to to a small employer and um and, and talk about the issue and that it won't adversely affect their career or, or create kind of tension or a negative atmosphere um in the studio so that's definitely something i think um might need to be to be looked at across the board Brilliant. Um, as with all the things we talk about today, you can read more about all these subjects on our website, creativereview.co.uk. Uh, but we're going to move on now to continuing with politics, but we're going to talk about uh, the... Re- it was tied into the recent uh, protests that happened in America around gun violence. Um, and one of the things that we saw happening there, as we have seen in previous marches, particularly the Women's March last year, we saw that uh, artists and designers from the creative communities were actually creating posters for people to use to march. And often these were quite a long uh, degree beyond just a kind of slogan. They often contained beautiful artwork and interesting messages that stood out. So we wanted to discuss a little bit about how some of the ones in the most recent marches had come about and also what this sort of means in terms of protest artwork going forward. So Saloni is going to talk us through the background to these particular posters. Okay, so um, this weekend it felt like the Never Again movement came to a head with uh, a series of protests across across the US. Um, a lot of these were led by students and their parents. A lot of them were actual victims from the Parkland Douglas High School. Um, and a majority of them were then, by extension, under 21 years of age. Um, So on the weekend when I was on Twitter, I noticed an illustrator called Edel Rodriguez, who we've written about on the website before, share some artwork and ask people to download it. And when I followed the link, it took me to WeTransfer. And that's when I discovered that WeTransfer, the sort of file sharing platform, had gotten involved in the protest in a way that uh, they were trying to facilitate um, artists to share their work with uh, protesters. They partnered with about five illustrators, including Edel Rodriguez and Kate Moros, a couple of others, um, got them to commission artwork that could be downloaded for free and then used either to print out in for people who were actually going to protests or to be shared on social media. And this struck me as really interesting because here was a big corporate getting involved, getting artists to share their work for free. So in a way, it feels quite democratic and quite easy, but then there's also the whole involvement of uh, a big corporate structure. And that's like a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, because we saw, I mean, we saw some of this coming through in the Women's March uh, last year where artists created a lot of posters, but I wasn't aware then whether brands had got involved. So I thought that was quite interesting because previously, also this year, it wasn't just those artists you mentioned, also various ad agencies in the States have uh, created artwork as well and my understanding from the kind of press stuff that I was sent about this was the kind of motivation to do it was perhaps similar to maybe if they were creating work for a non-profit or a charity that they wanted to kind of show their commitment to the cause but but I would imagine it's also a sort of nice creative opportunity as well to you know I don't want to sound too cynical about this because it's for a good cause but for them to to show their work as well so and again with brands I could you know it naturally could lend itself to there being a little bit of cynicism about brands getting involved. Yeah, something Refinery 29's done quite a lot with the the Women's March, um, and I think kind of trying to promote a message of female empowerment. And for them, it it, it definitely helps their brand because it's showing them to be really kind of 
supporting women um, and, and trying to, to kind of fight for, for women's rights and, and bring together artists to do that. Um, it, it obviously benefits as a brand from, from doing so, but it's also something that ties quite naturally into its message and, and the content it covers. I guess in the same sense, we transfer must be pretty similar because as, as a platform, through the way it shows artworks online, it's always been about supporting creatives. So I guess there's a, a kind of natural fit there with um, with with bringing in artists um, and and getting them to to help spread the message for events like this. Yeah, and I think there's also something interesting about who's protesting and what generation this movement comes out of because um, there's an older sort of cynical idea that perhaps. Got corporates should be completely you know, separate from politics and that these two are different worlds, like governance and sort of consumerism are two different worlds. But perhaps Generation Z is a little bit less cynical about this. And this is something that sort of was been written about recently in the light of these protests. And I read something very interesting about in The New Yorker, which, named, which identified this protest as perhaps the least anti-establishment protest that's ever happened and that's because that generation is quite open to this idea that there will be corporate sponsorships that will help amplify a message and they're okay with posing with a brand and taking a selfie in front of for example Shake Shack that did poster making contests and poster making workshops in their venues and they were quite okay with having photographs of that and that being a part of as important a part of the protest as actually making your own posters and going out and um and actually brands nowadays are, are less uncomfortable with getting engaged in politics obviously we've seen that a lot in advertising recently that brands have been sort of making more overt statements and and I suppose some of the gun violence stuff was initially led by brands who were boycotting certain stopping selling certain products on gun products and and so I suppose you could say they you know they do have a very valid place in this particular argument especially but but you were saying Pat earlier on that they there is a history of this kind of thing well there's certainly um, a longer history of um artists or illustrators or designers being involved uh, with protest marches in terms of the provision of uh, material to use by the protesters. So I remember with um, uh, the Women's March last year, for example, there was quite a lot of criticism of the idea that um, perhaps some artists or illustrators were almost kind of co-opting the movement and getting their own message out there rather than allowing people just to make their own signs and that somehow perhaps this was problematic, although I didn't really see too much of a, of a problem with it. But I mean, if you go back, for example, to the 1960s and, and think of the big um, CND marches, for example, uh, you had Ken Garland creating work for the marchers to use in their placards. It had a kind of cohesive visual identity, if you like, the whole movement. And there was a power in that. So I think it's really interesting because I think sometimes when professionals get involved and create messages for whether it's a, a demonstration or, or, or a, um, some kind of campaign. They can be too um, dry or too tidy or too uh, neat or too professionalised and it takes away some of the power. And, so, and, and oftentimes the, the really powerful stuff comes much more from, um, if you like, the, uh, the amateur, if that's not too uh, derogatory, um, which where, where there seems to be this ability to just kind of cut through and deliver very, very powerful messages. Um, and sometimes in the hands of the designer, it becomes a little bit too um, clean and neat and takes away some of the energy. Yeah, although I thought it was interesting with, uh, this is again, the Women's March, I haven't seen it so much in the recent one, but 
what you saw is with the posters that were more polished, you saw those being shared a lot on social media. I mean, you did see you did see people sharing the kind of witticisms that were done in the more handmade ones. But the ones that I really saw were, I mean, there's one of Princess Leia featured in it. And that was used a lot by people on their, their profile pics on social media. So actually, in a way, the reach then goes way beyond that of the actual march and into something that's perhaps a little bit long la- longer lasting than that one particular event, which I think is interesting. I think uh, for this particular one, the age of the protesters and the, you know, how how it, the sort of innocence of the whole movement is quite um, remarkable. And I think perhaps that's the reason why there's the rallying around these children and helping them, facil- you know, sort of facilitating their protest because it's not a case of just leaving them be and letting them get on, but the sort of elders in the community, the, you know, the, their parents and teachers and schools are all getting involved. So it does feel like, you know, there's there's support being offered by artists, especially in this case, maybe. I think what's also nice is that with these artworks, so with what we transfer did and also with, with Refinery29, getting artists to create these artworks that anyone can download and share on social media, just really helps kind of amplify a protest, I guess. And and what's lovely to see now is that you can be a part of it without being there and being able to physically take part in the march. So by being able to kind of show your, your support and solidarity with the cause on Twitter or Facebook, these protest movements begin to spread wider and wider and, and I guess have a much bigger platform than they, they may be used to. Um, and I guess maybe, you know, we used to see images of those on, on news coverage but now, I mean, things like the Women's March, within just a few weeks, they'd managed to have all of these marches. I think it was a few weeks. All of these marches organised all around the world in multiple cities going on at once. And that becomes so much more powerful, I guess, when, when you can look and see people in kind of eight, nine or ten places around the world, thousands of people gathering to do this. And I think the images that people can share on social media kind of pledging their allegiance plays a big role in that. If you want to have a look at the We Transfer posters, we're going to have them up on our um, Instagram feed so you can go to creative review on instagram and have a look at them there um okay so now we're gonna move on to a different subject altogether we're going to talk about photography specifically the work of uh, joel Marovitz. i hope i've pronounced that correctly um who's a legendary photographer uh, particularly known for his street photography he kind of came through in the 60s and 70s um he was part of a movement alongside stephen shaw and um when William Eggleston, uh, who introduced colour photography into the kind of art world photography. And he's recently released an amazing monograph of his work. And Rachel uh, talked to him uh, for a piece for us and had pretty amazing conversation, I think, with him um, and had some amazing stories to tell. And we were just going to talk through some of those. Um, He's now in his 80s, is that right? He turned 80 this year. Turned 80 this year. Yeah, in fact, I think last month. Okay. Around the time of the book coming out. Because one of the things that struck me that was kind of amazing was that when he first got started, he was working in advertising, I believe, and he his, his first sort of inspiration was working with uh, Robert Frank, another legendary photographer, on an ad campaign. Is that right? Can you tell me a bit about how that went? Sure. So, yes, he... So, Joel grew up in the Bronx, and, um, and he said he loved drawing as a kid. He was really into comics, which I guess was kind of one of the main forms of entertainment um, at that time. And he wasn't really aware of photography. He said he considered it something that your parents did to capture birthdays and holidays, but but there was no kind of connection there or, or real understanding of, of photography as a, a kind of artistic discipline. Um, but he went to art school 
Um, he, he got a job doing medical drawings, found it quite boring, got into advertising. And, um, and at the time, his, his boss, who I believe was called Harry Gordon, um, Joel was designing a book and Harry hired Robert Frank to shoot images for the book. So I think he was shooting some young girls doing after school activities. And Joel said he watched him work and was just absolutely fascinated by it. And um, he describes this in, in an interview with him that we put on our website. But for him, it was watching someone move and photograph these people and kind of capture this moment. But it was very much the kind of watching his movement as he did that that initially kind of really uh, inspired him but also that idea that that as he was moving he was just kind of capturing all of these moments um so i think he returned to his office that day and told his boss that he was going to quit um and that he was going to take photographs didn't actually have a camera at the time but his boss very kindly lent him one and told him that he could he could borrow that and pay him back when he'd made enough money to get his own camera yeah, great. It's a great story of how he started. Because um, he, he went on to do a lot of street photography, is that right? Can you talk a bit about how he, he shot? Because my understanding is that it was quite a distinctive sort of approach, at least in the early days. Yeah, I think what's, what's really lovely about how Joel learned photography is that it was just through getting out there and doing it day after day after day and building up this huge bank of images. So when I was speaking to him, he said that he didn't really know what he should photograph or what would make a great photograph when he started out. He didn't really have any formal training in photography. So the way he learned was just by going out on the streets. Um, he actually said he was very shy. And so one of the things he used to do was hide in the parades. And that offered a kind of camouflage. So there used to be a lot of parades happening kind of every weekend in New York. And uh, he and Tony Ray Jones, another photographer that he'd become friends with after they met in a dark room, um, these kind of young creatives that were <laughs> just starting out experimenting with photography, they would go and they would um, blend into the crowd and, and kind of observe people and photograph that way. And, um, and what's also really interesting is that they learned their craft together through really critiquing their work and just talking about it with each other. So um, Joel said that they would take perhaps kind of a hundred pictures in a month um, and they would go back and they would look at them in his apartment and they would try and talk about their work and you know what was different about their work because essentially they were shooting the same things but they were doing it in very different ways um, and they would kind of critique and say you know maybe if you'd have stayed a little bit longer you might have captured this moment or you know maybe if you'd got in a little bit closer and so really just through kind of talking to peers they 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 built up I guess this understanding of of their own unique voice but but also kind of what worked and, and what didn't and I think people sometimes think when they see work from someone like Joel Merovit that it seems quite out of reach or unattainable what they've achieved but actually when you talk to him about it it was purely just that process of practice and learning and going out and doing it kind of and real critique I guess I mean Tony Ray Jones is as far as I know of his work he's very much a black and white photographer obviously Joel did do this sort of pioneering in colour. Um, I mean, it's hard to think about that now because we're so used to colour photography and we're used to colour photography in the kind of art world setting. But at that time, it was really seen as being very much a sort of commercial side of photography, uh, which was kind of shunned a lot by the art world and so much so that, you know, they they wouldn't have exhibitions of colour photography uh, for a long, really quite a long time. And, and Joel was very much one of those pioneers in that did he talk at all about that to you about why what he felt about that moment he did yeah and it's something he talks about in the book as well so over the book he tries to look at kind of various questions that he's addressed in in his career and one of them is the question of color 
I think he actually came to it in a slightly naive way. So to him, why not shoot in colour? He'd, he'd worked in advertising. He wasn't necessarily kind of part of the art photography world. And so to him, when he spoke to me, he said, well, why not shoot in colour? The world's in colour. And he also made a lovely point that colour really means something to us. We, we choose the colours we wear or the makeup we put on or the cars we drive. And it's a kind of expression of our identity. But also it's, it's just what makes the world around us so vibrant. So um, to him, it was a kind of natural choice. But he quickly learned that there was a, a lot of, I guess, kind of snobbery around colour at that time. And, and he said that when he spoke to art photographers who he later met, they just said it was amateur. Um, it was for the magazines. It was for adverts. And yeah, I think it really wasn't considered um, art photography at, at the time. So I, I think as he kind of realised that, he wanted to make the case for colour. And one thing he would do is, is shoot black and white images and then shoot the same scene in colour and, and try and put them alongside each other and I think really show what colour could, could bring to a scene. And obviously there is so much kind of amazing black and white photography, but what you see from a lot of these photographs of places like New York and Paris is, you know, someone dressed in amazing flares and fantastic kind of 70s and 80s clothes in these really bright colours and they really pop or you see the signage behind people. And, and I think it's it becomes such a rich picture because of those contrasting colours and I think that was something that, that he was really keen to, to show in his work. And what did he say about uh, photography now? Because obviously now we all have you know a camera in our phone and there's so much photography now and often you know street photography is one of the sort of most popular kind of styles. I mean does he, does he think there's still great photography made in that area? He was positive and said that he still thinks there's a lot of photographers doing great work. He's certainly not someone who is kind of down on photography now, but he definitely said that he felt it had lost something. When he talks about shooting photographs in the 60s and 70s, he said that there was this real kind of innocence and sweetness to life on the street. And I guess also people weren't so self-conscious. So they would kind of interact with each other visually more, but also there perhaps wasn't that fear and suspicion of someone taking your picture and, you know, why are you taking my photograph? What are you going to do with it? Is this going to go on social media? And also people just being kind of generally now more conscious of their image. So I think for him, he felt that perhaps that's been lost. Um, but he also talked about the way that the actual landscape of the cities changed too. And um, and he was saying that now there's so much advertising and signage and digital screens that he almost felt like a lot of these cities have kind of maybe lost a little bit of their character or they're perhaps quite dominated by those things now. Um, and, and it's kind of difficult to escape that. So it's almost, I guess, like these things are fighting for attention with, with the people that are in the pictures. Whereas if you look back to his photographs of the 60s and 70s, there's, you know, there's cafes, there's shops, there's buildings, but but they kind of provide this backdrop and the people are the real focus. Yeah. Um, there's not the signage perhaps as there is now. And uh, I mean, the digital screens, I think, is especially just changing because when you look at those older photographs and you see the incredible, you know, somehow the ads all look amazing and the design of the signs all look amazing because we're all enamoured by the kind of retro thing. But actually the thought of trying to photograph with a digital screen flickering away is, would, would kind of take something away, I can see that. Well, that's very good. Well, uh, Rachel did an amazing interview with Joel, which is on our site, as the other things are we're talking about today, uh, and definitely worth looking out. Um, one final thing that I was going to talk about was I this weekend I was lucky enough to go to Offset in Dublin, uh, which is an annual design and sort of arts festival uh, with lots of speakers. We had speakers from all over the world. And I just want to talk a little bit about um, one of the talks that I saw, which was 
uh, by Chris Ware, who I imagine a lot of you will know, but is a an artist, an illustrator, a comic book artist and illustrator, um, who also does a lot of covers for The New Yorker. Um, and his work sort of has a sort of slightly retro feel too, in a way, um, and has a a sort of pathos, but a lot of humour as well. It's quite sort of soulful work, I always think. Um, and uh, he was in conversation, and one of the nicest things about it was that he, often with these sort of conferences, and everyone here has been lucky enough to go to lots of them, I often feel like they, it can feel quite a polished experience that people will show their work and say, you know, I've done this thing, and isn't it amazing? Well, they won't say, isn't it amazing? But it will ultimately be amazing. And one of the nice things about uh, hearing Chris talk is he was um, he was very self-effacing. He's actually quite known for that, but he was he was very sort of you know full of self-doubt, and he talked quite a lot about the difficulty of getting down to working and the difficulty of rating your own work. Actually, like he was saying, even though I you know I think of him as this incredibly successful, brilliant artist that. He was saying that, you know, he finds it really painful looking at his work and that it's only six months after it's been printed, he'll, you know, be able to look back at it and see any sort of merit in it. And uh, it was quite nice to hear that in a way from someone who who you sort of admire so much and has has been so successful to actually be to be so self-conscious. So uh, it was good. But again, his, he's um, we've done I've taken the highlights from his talk and they're on the website as well. So uh, everyone should check it out. All right, I think maybe we're going to wrap it up unless anyone has anything more to say today. Uh, But thank you for listening. And uh, this is going to be a regular event that we're going to come together and talk about things. But we will also be inviting guests in to talk about their views on the industry and also do some interviews, no doubt, in the future. But uh, thanks for listening and visit creativereview.co.uk for more stuff. (laughs) 